Hi. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Sitel Kalantri. She's a clinical professor at Cornell Law School, author of Women's Human Rights and Migration, Sex Selective, Sex Selective Abortion Laws in the United States and India. Nearly half of state legislatures in the United States have proposed laws restricting sex-selective abortion. International human rights expert Sitel Kalantri focuses in her book on immigrants of Asian descent living in the United States who are believed to abort female fetuses because they do not want a female child. She investigates the actual occurrence of sex-selective abortion among Asian Americans, the consequences of the laws in each country for women's equality, and the social and the social and cultural context in which women in the United States and India practice sex-selective abortion. Uh, uh, Sitel Salantri is the director of the International Human Rights Policy Advocacy Clinic and co-director of the Migration and Human Rights Program at Cornell Law School. Welcome to the show, Sitel. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be on with you. All right. Well, your work, as we understand it, or as I understand it, focuses on international human rights uh, involving specifically the right to education and access to justice for women. So I guess uh, overall that represents your, your work. But specifically in terms of this book, how does your new book, which deals with women's, uh, women's human rights and specifically sex-selective abortion laws in the United States, how does this fit into that overall picture for, of women's, human, women's rights, I guess I would say, here in the United States? Well, I think, you know, I believe that um, having a woman, uh, women's reproductive rights are an essential part of women's rights. And some of the trends that uh, we're seeing in the United States are um, that women's rights are being restricted on the basis of misinformation and decontextualization about um, what is happening in other countries. And so that's how it fits in. It's sort of a comparative look and trying to um, sort of a, a quantitative and qualitative look at how we can better understand the empirical reality in the United States so we can better um, uh, evaluate laws that restrict abortion rights. And so you're making that comparison between laws in the United States and laws in India, Asian women? Correct. Yeah. Okay, so in your findings, so what? let's talk about some of those findings and what you've come up with in terms of making that comparison. And I guess... Women's rights have to be in the, you're saying there's a cultural context. Let's talk about the cultural context of women's rights, let's say, here in the United States and selective abortion. So just to, um, you know, sort of paint the picture a little bit more, I think you had accurately suggest, uh, pointed out that um, there's a trend in the United States where state legislatures are introducing laws that will criminalize uh, medical providers if they know um, that a woman is seeking uh, to terminate her pregnancy on the basis of the sex of the fetus. Um, ten states have actually passed these laws. They're currently 
a few, the laws in a few states are being challenged. Like, for example, the law in Arkansas um, has been challenged by the, uh, the, the, the ACLU and Center for Reproductive Rights. What it requires uh, a medical professional to ask every um, woman that comes before him whether she knows the sex of the fetus, and if she does, then he or she has to to terminate the to terminate the conversation and go out and seek all the prior medical records, right? So this is sort of causes a delay and it impacts all women. So you know, I, I don't think anybody, very few people actually are seeking abortions on this basis or even uh, trying to use. You know, in the United States, it's perfectly legal to use IVF or sperm starting pre-implantation techniques. So if someone truly wants to uh, make sure they have a boy or a girl, they would, would, could use those methods rather than, than any, you know, going through the, the really horrible impacts this could have on, on your body. So the question to me was, why are these laws passing? And I, when I started to look into it, it, it became clear that the rhetoric in the state legislatures, and in fact, in, in the, it, these, uh, the, this law is called Prenda in the Congress, um, and it all, every year it's reintroduced, and it's currently also pending. And the preambles of these bills claim that the, the, um, in places like India and China, well, may, where many of us are aware from what we hear in the media, that um, women uh, uh, abort uh, female fetuses because they want to have fewer children and they want to make sure they have at least one boy, uh, and then the idea is that, well, people are coming here in this sort of a cultural practice and they're replicating it in this country. And so um, I partnered with the National um, Association for uh, uh, Asian American Women's Organizations and many economists to, to really look at what the data is in the U.S. Well, what is it that Asian Americans are doing? And one of the ways demographers study this is by looking at the, uh, the, uh, uh, the sex of the children of, of this group of people. So we looked at, okay, well, are they producing equal numbers of boys and girls, or are there more boys in this population? And when you look overall, there, there are maybe about 17 million Asian Americans, several million of those are Chinese and, and Indians. They actually have an equal number of boys and girls. In fact, they have a little bit more girls. So it sort of disproves this myth that there is a preference for sons. Um, there's also... Other ways in which we um, looked at it, sort of, uh, we looked at, uh, at the different birth parodies. And here is where it gets a little bit tricky. There was um, one of the reasons that these laws came into uh, being is that uh, some economists found that when Chinese-American, Korean-American, and Indian-American people uh, have one girl child, their second child is more likely to be a boy than a, a Caucasian American second child. And now it's similarly for the third child. And then these findings were misrepresented in many of the media sources that claim that there's a crisis of sex selection. But when you look at the raw numbers, you think it's maybe 1,000 or 2,000 of these uh, uh, people who might be acting to manipulate the children they have. And our data showed, well, they, they, they're also, when they have boy children, they're, some of them are more likely to have girl children. So one could disagree with sex selection because it, 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 it enhances stereotypes. It assumes that, that um, gender is binary. There's lots of reasons one can be opposed of it, but there's certainly no reason to, to pass harmful legislation 
on, on, on sexual election around the country in order to, to address a non, non-existent problem. So where did that come from? Uh, you know, this, this, I guess, this motivation or this impetus to, to address a non-existent problem. How did it arise? So, you know, as everyone is aware, it's a very divisive issue, uh, abortion in the United States. There are uh, groups of people who strongly feel that it's wrong and it's, it's murder. And the, the pro-life advocates strategically used this information about a practice in India, targeted immigrants and advanced an agenda to um, uh, uh, restrict reproductive rights. And it was very clever because many feminists themselves have trouble with it, right? I mean, we ha- I have trouble with the fact that there are 60 million, um, quote-unquote, missing girls in India. Uh, nobody believes that this practice is acceptable, right, or, or wants to continue this overall practice. And so you, 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 you take this sort of, you know, stereotypes about Asian, Asian Americans and, and you've, they've sort of convinced many pro-choice legislators to vote in favor of these bans, sort of supporting the idea that actually it enhances women's equality to restrict reproductive rights, which it seems, you know, mind-blowingly counterintuitive to, to, to many of us. Um, and they used very narrow data, so as I said, in 2008, um, economists came out with this study that showed that, uh, these, that, that, that looked at birth parodies and found that um, some uh, Asian American families, when they have one girl child, are more likely to have a boy child at their second uh, lev- uh, child, and actually even more when they have two girl child- children. And this study was maybe it involved, if you, they didn't actually say the numbers, but maybe in the thousands. So you take this study, the study itself shows, says that there's a crisis in the U.S. You expand that and say, well, of all this, you know, you make this, uh, uh, these legislatures started to claim that, well, of the 17 million Asian Americans, well, all of them are utilizing this, you know, son preference. They hate daughters. Our misogynists want to have girls. And so this created... Uh, 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 this legislative firestorm immediately after the, the misinterpretations about this academic article uh, went about. What's the difference between that? And I, I see, I mean, as you explained it, it's a kind of, a, it is a um, pro-life agenda, I guess, um, hoping to restrict abortion. I mean, what what would be the difference between that and a, a woman's right to have, let's say, a woman's right to have an abortion and abort a fetus that is malformed or deformed or who's going or sick or um, how, how does that fit into the picture? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a great question. And Along with these bans, well, uh, on sex-selective abortion, I call them reason-based bans. The pro-life movement calls them anti-discrimination provisions. Um, along with these uh, sex-selective abortion bans, there have been two uh, related bans that uh, several states have considered, um, and two states have actually passed. So in Arizona, uh, a woman can't uh, abort her fetus if, she, if it's because of the race of the fetus, which again is... Uh, for many reasons, um, very odd. 
you know, who, who, like, how does one even do that? I mean, I, I'm, you know, uh, uh, I'm Indian American. Do I, am I going to discriminate against my, my fetus in any particular <laughs> way? I doesn't, right. doesn't make sense. Right. And this was targeting African American women. The idea was that they're so, uh, that the, and, and this factually, this is correct, right? That disproportionately, uh, minority women, African American and, and Latinas are, are more likely their rates of abortion are higher. So, uh, the claim is that, well, that's because of discrimination. So, and, and it, 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 it just, um, uh, the ACLU also brought a suit there in Arizona saying it stigmatizes uh, African-American women. They lost because uh, of standing issues um, in the Ninth Circuit. But getting back to uh, your question, uh, in, in Arkansas, disability selection uh, is, is banned as well. So the idea is that if you have a child with Down syndrome or, or pregnant with a child that's been detected with fetal abnormalities, if if that's the reason that a woman wants to obtain an abortion, she cannot um, in several states, including Arkansas, but there was an injunction against that law, and that has been appealed by the government. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, in Indiana, yeah, both in Arkansas and in Indiana. The Indiana one is currently appealed to the Seventh Circuit. Um, this was a law that Pence signed before he became vice president, uh, which, again, pre- pre- prevents all three of these things, race, uh, uh, if, if an abortion is on the basis of the race of the fetus, the disability of the fetus, or the sex of the fetus. And who knows? The Supreme Court is yet to rule on a reason-based ban, but this issue may be making itself, uh, making its way there through this uh, case that's currently pending in the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So your book is really important for uh, lay people, lay women like who are pro-choice, uh, like myself, because uh, this is sort of the, the, the pro-life movement is getting in through the back door. And this is something that really uh, I think most, most women are not aware of as, as you're describing this situation. And I, I'm also thinking of another situation if uh, this in vitro and I, is uh, fertilization is very popular. Uh, and one of the things I know that if one, say, um, is pregnant with two or more embryos, uh, doctors recommend terminating the uh, pr- terminating or uh, 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 there's another word that they use for it, but uh, selective. um, selective. selectively, yeah, Term- selectively, abortion. so that you the, the you know the so that the the woman only carries two. Uh, only ha- twins at the most, right? Um, that's another area, but that's you know m- physicians that that's a recommendation that, as I understand it, that is you know uh, recommended by physicians to, in 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 most of the states. I don't know. Can you respond to that? Right. So um, as I had mentioned, you know. It's, it's, uh, there's no legal uh, ban and nobody's even trying, none of these bills uh, try to restrict what happens pre-implantation. So with, um, with IVF, there's a procedure uh, called PGT where you can, when the embryos are formed, uh, you know, uh, outside of the, the uterus in the, in the Petri dish, uh, the doctors can test whether, uh, it's a fem- whether it's a female or male and implant only the, the, the uh, embryos of the designated sex, assuming that's what the parents want. Um, and then, as you note, sometimes there's multiple embryos implanted because you never know which, how many or if any will uh, actually right. take, right? So uh, there, the uh, issue is a little bit different because it's simply just, 
you know, most states will have no restrictions at that early stage. Because of Roe v. Wade, uh, states can't ban uh, those kinds of selective abortions that are, you know, uh, maybe a week or two two weeks, not even that, you know, uh, very, very much pre-viability selections. And and again, as long as there's no specific reason, uh, and in some states, as I mentioned, the reasons are being, you know, there's distinctions being made between what's appropriate uh, for a woman to terminate her pregnancy and what's not appropriate, uh, what reasons are not appropriate. All right. So that, that present, I see, that present, presents a very different scenario than what you're talking about. Right. All right. So given, the, given what you've done, your work, your new book, um, what's the, what, what do you see as the response to your, your book and also to the work that you've done in terms of the research, um, the response of the uh, medical community, uh, the response of, of women, uh, or what has been the response? Well, I mean, I, I, my hope, I just actually came back from uh, uh, New Delhi where we had a, a book uh, discussion and a book launch. And I think one of the goals in, 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 in India was to explain to people how um, actors in the United States are sort of misusing information. Uh, there's, they, they've, they, they, they've uh, one particular group made a movie about sex selection in India. They came to India didn't tell people that they're funded by anti-abortion groups, took this into the United States and used it to try to restrict um, and pass this legislation. Um, And, and, you know, pro-choice feminists who are, uh, like Ms. called it, you know, a a feminist movie, Amnesty International is raving about it. So I'm just trying to bring accurate information about what's happening in India and accurately show that it's that, that it act, in India it's really a fertility decline it's a desire to have at least one son it's the context peep dowry you know for poor people playing dowry is expensive for a girl the son provides support in old age uh, where there isn't much a pension system to do that uh, the girl gets married and leaves the family's home, whereas the son brings in the daughter-in-law and takes care of the parents. There's these factors. Uh, is in, in my study involves India. You know, China has its own different, similar but uh, different sets of issues that I that I don't really go into. But so what I'm I'm, I'm trying to suggest is that uh, the, that context changes when people come to the U.S. and you can't just attribute everything to culture and culture of immigrants as changes as well. So I'm trying to just sort of. Um, explain to people one that the empirical reality is uh, that they understand is not true, and two that the the context in which the practice occurs defines it as being discriminatory or not discriminatory, and so that they don't inav- and inadvertently support laws that they think are enhancing women's rights but are actually uh, harmful to them. That's well said. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things. I think that um, Americans particularly have difficulties seeing things in a cultural context. Um, it's, you know, generally speaking. Um, so I think, particularly in this case, I mean, your work is really important. I'm interested in New Delhi, who you, uh, where you spoke or who you were speaking to. I was in New Delhi like about six months ago. So um, was this an academic group or? 
Yes, it was um, a, a law school in Delhi that we have a collaborative relationship with. We had organized a, a panel uh, which brought in um, advocates in India that advocate against sex selection, uh, reproductive rights advocates, um, you know, a woman who was actually interviewed by these anti-abortion groups, and she was mortified. She actually was the first speaker and was so um, sweet and said, you know, I had no idea. They came from America. They said they cared about this issue. And, you know, my voice was hijacked by them to help support an anti-abortion agenda in the United States when I did not mean to do that at all. So in speaking to them or speaking to this particular person, so how, you know, so that doesn't happen because. Hello? Yep. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Yeah. No, oh, okay. Uh, no, I guess the question was, so how do you avoid this kind of, how do you avoid this happening? Um, you know, because as you say, this woman was like mortified. She had no idea what, you know, the information that she was giving was going to be used uh, in, for anti-abortion rights. Um, so how do you prevent this from happening? Well, I think there's, you know, uh, this awareness, this was my goal was to create a transnational dialogue amongst, amongst feminist um, and women's rights advocates across the, the world so, what, so that we're aware of each of our own different um, battles and struggles uh, and not inadvertently, um, you know, uh, uh, work in, in contravention to our own issues, right? And, and understanding that it's context-related. In Indian context, there's maybe a desire to restrict. Um, uh, so it's illegal, for example, in India for any woman to learn of the future sex of her fetus because the worry uh, in an effort to try to prevent sex selective abortions. Um, and whereas in that context, perhaps we can see it justified, um, in a, a context like the United States, it has all these other problematic consequences, right? Doesn't address an issue, um, is, is, is could also, it, it leads to profiling um, of Asian American women. I, I've heard a story where a woman this also is an issue in Canada and the UK. She went to find out she wanted to have a gender reveal party, and the doctor said, "No, you're you're of Indian descent. We're not going to tell you. We're just worried that you you might abort it if it's a female." So those are just uh, you know harmful um, stereotypes that are being utilized in reproductive care. And my goal is to inform, and the ways we do it is to be a little bit skeptical about. And, and, and try to, to, to learn who it is that's advocating for this and why are they advocating for this. And um, uh, uh, unfortunately, in, in, in the, the global world we live in, we, we, we need to better understand and, and uh, compare what's happening in other countries before we just accept the unnuanced, stereotyped uh, understanding of it. Yeah, and I I think that's very obviously that's very important. How do you do that to get that message out to just the general lay public? I mean, you're a, a law professor. You're talking to academics. You're talking to researchers. Um, you know, it's very uh, intellectual kinds right. of dialogue that you have sure. with people. How do you? I mean, you know, being on radio shows like this is very helpful. But how do you get the how do you get the general public? to understand the work that you're doing and the implications that have for the legislation that's passed. 
that's a great question, and, and, and I do appreciate the opportunity to talk with you here and to your audience about this uh, and to draw, uh, uh, you know, give people more guidance about how to uh, think about this issue. There are um, one organization called the National Asian Pacific Women's American Women's Forum is, is actively um, uh, uh, raises awareness in state legislatures, along with other pro-choice advocates. I mean, I, I you know, pro-choice advocates haven't made this their top issue. A lot of people don't even know about the fact that there's these laws passing all over America as we speak today. Missouri is the next state where this where this is uh, going to be presented. But their local people and this national group are going to Missouri. We have published a report along with this organization called Replacing Myths with Facts. It's um, called Sex Selective Abortion Laws uh, in the United States. That is more for uh, a public audience um, that specifically lays out the problems with these laws in the way that I laid it out in my book, but my book is more engaged with academics. So when I, one thing I would recommend for sure is if, you, if people want to look at a copy of this or disseminate this, this is certainly, a, in a, a, and, and this is sent to every state legislatures when they're considering voting on these laws so that they don't get duped by stereotypes um, and calls for equality that are actually uh, 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 not called, that, that actually are detrimental to women's rights. Yeah, and I think the other thing is there's a generation gap. I think that women, and, and I'm, I'm sure this is this has been discussed, but I know women, I, I'm a baby boomer, and the next generation really has taken kind of a backseat to even becoming involved in issues related to to women's abortion rights, for instance, because they they're kind of soft, I, I think, on that, and and don't really don't realize these laws as you're discussing them as we speak are being passed. Have no idea, and not even interested, because they don't think things are necessarily going to change. Um, and I, I think that uh, they're, you know, say uh, baby boomers versus Gen X and even the millennials kind of um, don't really see this as an issue. Um, and so I think it's it, it's really important, I think, to get the word out there as you're doing, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think that uh, the women under 40, I guess, is what I... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, we take it for granted because, yeah. you know, 19... 19- uh, you know, Roe v. Wade has been uh, on the books in the 1970s, but feminists at, of that, that generation struggled really hard and know what it is to not have uh, the, the legal right to, um, uh, to have autonomy over your body and the impact that can have on women's lives. So once this, you know, and I think very, you know, very few people maybe are aware. I mean, the state-level strategies have been so successful um, in, in, in restricting these rights, and there have been national groups that, that are fighting it, but some states don't have any you know, or very few abortion providers. So in, in effect, access is, is, is quite limited um, on, on the state level, and hopefully at uh, the national level, you know, depending on where, uh, who gets, <laughs> who leaves the Supreme Court and who gets appointed, then... I think uh, when, it, when it hangs in the balance, I, I do hope more people uh, become more involved in thinking about this. You know, I'm heartened about the Me Too movement, for example. Uh, really, everyone has gotten, uh, people on the ground have gotten engaged and said, no, it's not okay. And uh, as a, social media has allowed people to come out of the shadows and no longer feel stigmatized about it. So there is some hope in 
in the in the in the new coming generation to 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 push for women's rights. Yeah, uh, that's true. the The Me Too thing is is a great thing. is is a good thing, and and we I hope we're go- hopefully we are going in the right direction. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left, so talk to us about what websites we can go to to get some more information about what we've been talking about today and uh, obviously your book we can buy your book where you online bu- you can buy my book at amazon you can buy my book at barnes and nobles any bookstore uh, online uh, bookstore where books are sold um, and i hope you you do to do, to do buy them and, and become engaged in it. Uh, the report that I mentioned and some other articles are also available on my website, and my website is kalantri.lawschool.cornell, uh, C-O-R-N-E-L-L, dot E-D-U. Sital, it was a real pleasure talking to you today. Um, and I will mention the book again, Women's Human Rights and Migration, Sex Selective Abortion Laws in the United States and India. Thanks so much uh, for being here this morning. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox. 
Fox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is best-selling author and ULA guru, Troy Amdahl, author of ULA, Find Balance in an Unbalanced World, The Seven Areas You Need to Balance and Grow to Live the Life of Your Dreams. Why not go into this New Year's busy hustle and hustle proactively with a plan to keep your life in balance? Troy Amdahl and co-author Dave Brown deliver a powerful yet simple message. When your life is in balance and growing in the seven key areas of life, fitness, finance, family, field, which is career, faith, friends, and fun, you experience less stress, more balance, and greater purpose. Uh, Troy Amdahl, an Ironman triathlete and a cum laude graduate from Northwestern University, became a devoted husband and father and successful businessman traveling the world, retiring debt-free at age 42. Today, the Ula guys travel the country in a 1970 VW surf bus speaking to groups, collecting dreams, and helping people find balance, purpose, and growth. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here this morning, Troy. It's so nice to be back, Catherine. Great. Yes, great to have you back. But for those who still don't know who an, or who or what an ULA guy is, and you are, and so is your co-author Dave Brown, let's start with that. What is who is an ULA guy? What does ULA guy mean? Well, it's just it's something a name that social media gave us is like two guys traveling the country in this crazy 1970s VW bus collecting dreams, and really all we are um, is just a couple of guys who. For since 1997, woke up every morning trying to just be better versions of ourselves, and we're now traveling the country in this bus, inspiring other people to find more balance in life, a life of uh, less stress and greater purpose. So, how did you guys find each other? Actually, you and Dave Brown, because both of you wrote this. Yeah, book. it's yeah. a it's an interesting story. Um, he was an intern in my office way back in 1997, and after his internship, he worked very hard. And I said, you know what? Um, you worked hard. Let's go to Vegas. And he thought it was a, he was a young kid who it's the first time he's ever been on a plane. And he thought, this is great. We're going to Vegas. And I'm like, it's not what you think. We're going to go there. It was this time of year. It's always the first weekend of December. And we're going to go there and step outside of the craziness of life because you're starting a career. You, he just got married. He was just starting a family. I said, let's, let's step outside of life and look at life for, for the, in this case, 1998 and say, what do you want in your life? Not just in money and business which society will tell you, like, these are the, the markers of success. But what kind of father do you want to be? What kind of husband do you want to be? What do you want to do for fun? Uh, how about your career? What is that going to look like? How about a faith walk? What are you going to do in, in 1998 to be a better version of you in that category? And we sat on the floor at the Hard Rock in, in note cards, those old-fashioned three-by-five recipe cards, and we put them in stacks of seven, and we said, this is where I am in this particular category. This is where I'd like to go if I could dream big. And most importantly, these are the action steps I'm going to take to make positive change in my life. And we both, we both achieved the ULA definition of success, not just money and business, but successful marriages and families. And we're taking care of our health and having fun in life, joy in, in the day-to-day um, activities of life. But then what happened, as what happens with friends, is he got busy building a family and career of his own, a life of his own. I moved overseas to pursue a business opportunity, and we drifted. And he called me, um, I believe it was like 2010, 2009, and he said, you're not going to believe this, but all, all that success I had, I've lost it all. He was bankrupt. He was divorced. He lost his business. 
just basically lost. And, and what I said is like, what happened? And when we dug into it, he drifted from this simple thing we used to do once a year, which is look at our life in these seven areas and course a path from where we wanted to go. And I said, why don't you go back to that? Why don't you go back to that thing that worked, that ULA thing? And he did. And he said, if this works, if this, if this gets the simple thing, gets me out of this dark place, we're going to share it with the world. And I'm like, well, that's cool. But first let's get you out of your mom's car and out of that bad part of town. And then we'll talk about changing the world. Well, fast forward, uh, he got his ULA back in short. And we sat down at my lake um, cabin in the summer once he started getting his ULA back and said, what does this look like, this thing, this ULA thing we do? And we, we outlined the book. And the book, the first book, uh, was self-published. And then the, the publishers, the original publishers of Chicken Soup for the Soul saw what we were doing, and they liked the cause behind the movement. And they signed us for a three-book deal, and that brought us with you today. That's fantastic. That's a great story. Obviously, that's a success story. But I, I just want to backtrack just because he, he you're, uh, Dave, I guess. Uh, how did he? How did he get back? How did you get? Did you have to get him back on track? I guess is the question. I mean, you need he. How did that happen? Actually, he, walk us he through it. Need, yeah, yeah, you can walk us through the process. Nudge. Yeah, he just needed a nudge. So you know, what happened was is that you know on Facebook everyone looks happy. So, like, when I was watching his life and I get the annual Christmas card, I thought he was just doing great. So when he, call, when he called me that day from that motel he was now in because he lost his house and lost his cars and lost his business, and lost, I mean, lost everything. Um, and, and we're talking, it was, a, it was a big fall. He had a multi-million dollar house and business and five kids. and It was a drastic fall. So when he called me, it, it caught me off guard. And, and he's an optimistic guy, and he was doing well. But at that moment, he sounded defeated, like many of the people we meet on the road, by the way, just overwhelmed with life stresses. And I remember saying him, he said the thing that had the most impact in that moment. I remember telling him, I said, Dave, at this moment, you just need to understand this is just where you are. It's not who you are. Because he was starting to feel defeated, like this is me. This is my legacy. This is my life. And I'm like, this is just a season. I mean, it's where you are. It's not who you are. You're, de- you're designed for something great, something unique, something amazing. We all have unique gifts, skills, and abilities that, that are inside of you. You just can't see them in the chaos of the debt collectors and the divorce papers and the stress of the moment of where you are. Step outside of that and go into this process of ULA and just say, okay, where am I in these seven areas? And in that moment, it wasn't pretty but he did need to grieve it, call it out, put it on the table, walk around it and say, okay, this isn't good. I am bankrupt. And under family, I am getting a divorce. And under career, I did lose my business, but he had to, he couldn't, he couldn't change what he didn't, he, he didn't acknowledge. So the yeah, first you have step, to acknowledge, three step, I think the first step though, he called you. He did. He, he did because he didn't know who else to call. And he, he even tells the story from stage when we, when we speak across the country that, the last person you want to call is your most successful friend. But he was, he was hanging out with, you know, people that were just kind of like, oh, it's just, it's 2008, it's the economy, it's whatever, and everyone's going through it. And he just needed a nudge, though. I, I didn't do anything specific other than tell him that it's just a season and it's not, it's not who he was, he, it's just where he was. And he just needed to engage in a process that, that showed the way out. Like, okay. Uh, how do I, like, what is, what is some action I can actually take tomorrow? Even though it's so overwhelming with all of the things coming in, it's like, well, I can call the debt collectors and just get a total. I can 
sit down with my family and say, we're a family no matter what. Um, you know, so let's, it's a new look to the family because we're divorced, but how are we going to work this new dynamic? And in a career, it's like, what do I want to do? So it was really just engaging him in a process and nudging him back to a process that worked so well for him in 1997. So, and obviously this process works not just for Dave, but for many other people because you're finding such success with it. What do you think it is about this process? Because, you know, the, the trending is like find balance, find purpose, and find growth. That's what people say they want to do that. And they, it seems to me that there are a lot of self-help books out there and all, you know, and all kinds of things that will sort of like, you know, get you back on track. But what's different about your approach? Why does yours work? I think why, why it's worked so well, and we get asked this question a lot, I, is it, it's, it's simplicity in it. Um, meaning it's not this 500-page book about these 400 things. If you do these 400 things, you'll be successful like this person. It's saying everyone's unique. We're not telling people what success looks like. We're saying that you're designed for something specific. Just divide your life in these seven categories, which makes it easy to think about life, that, okay, what do I want for my family? What do I want for my personal finance? What do I want for my personal health, for my fitness? And then we're saying, in the book, quite simply, section three goes into, all right, now I know what I want. I'm going to run into these things called blockers because everyone does it. Anyone who set a goal and hasn't achieved it runs into fear, fear of success or fear of failure, um, fear of judgment, or they run into guilt or they run into self-worth or self-sabotage issues. And then section four simply guides them through accelerators like love and gratitude and wisdom and humility, things they should invite into their life. And the final section which is probably the clarity point for people, just three simple steps to follow. This is where I am. This is where I want to go. And step three, these are the action steps I'll take to get there. And I think in that simplicity, we, we lecture from kindergartners to cardiothoracic anesthesiologists, and it's pretty much the same talk. Uh, I'm not surprised. It is. It's the same talk. It's like in, in kindergartners we're talking about, you know, your uniqueness as snowflakes and fingerprints. <laughs> and, and the anesthesiologists were talking about, you know, purpose, but it's the same talk of saying, hey, you're designed for something unique. Step outside the chaos of life. This is a perfect time of year to do that, by the way. Look at your life in these seven categories. Be honest with where you are in the moment. Dream big where you'd like to go and bridge that gap with action steps. So how often do you have to think about this? Because you're talking about kindergartners and thoracic surgeons. Uh, because I think that... Uh, People don't do that. I think you're right. They, you get involved in whatever you do, whether it's school or profession, or uh, and you sort of lose sight of where am I going and why am I doing this. And so let's maybe go back to the kindergartners. If they're being able to examine their lives in this way at age six, uh, is this something that you have to constantly be aware of? Like, where am I going? And, and sort of always be analyzing uh, the choices you make and what you do? Or is, does it become spontaneous? Or how does that work? You have to build it into your life. Uh, so it, it, it really doesn't take much time. So how we just finished uh, last weekend, we finished our two-day event called Ula Palooza in Vegas, where basically we go back to Vegas, invite people to show up, and we, we spend two days stepping out of the busyness of life and going through this process. And the people, so I would recommend um, someone read the book or step outside of life this time of year and say, what do I want for 2018 in these seven categories? And then the process guides you to your top seven goals like how to set goals tactically. It teaches you how to set goals in a way that you can achieve them. Um, and in front of you then, 
after you read the book or after you attend an, that event, you have seven things in 2018. And then we recommend putting those somewhere you see them every morning and every evening. So in the bathroom or by your desk. And every day you look at those seven and on a note card, it's this simple because we do it the same way that we did it back in 1997. On the left-hand side of that note card, this is the most valuable tip your listeners can get. Is it, so you have seven things you want to happen, the top seven that will give your life more balance and greater purpose, the big things you want to happen. Maybe it's pay off a credit card or heal a marriage or, or get a promotion. On the left-hand side of a note card every day, you write down the stuff you have to do. Um, it's just the junk of going to ship a package for Christmas or washing the car or fixing something or cleaning the house or running an errand, pick up the kids after soccer. But on the right-hand side, every day, even your busiest day, you have three or more things that are directly connected in a small way to those seven big things you want. So if you want to lose 30 pounds, it's like I'm walking 20 minutes. If you want to um, have better family life or heal a marriage, it's like we're having a cup of coffee and looking at each other in the eyes without phones for 20 minutes today. So every day, these seem like small things on the right side of the note card. But if, if we're left to our own if we're left to ourselves, in a year we won't do anything. But if you do this, in one year you will have taken a thousand small steps toward the life you dream of and deserve. So that is how it looks on a practical level. It's like, yes, you spend some reflecting time this time of year to look at your next year, but every day you look at the seven things that, that you want, you've declared that you want for your life, and then also every day you write down at least three things that are directly connected toward those. So that's critical. I think that's a. I, now, I, I'm glad you. That makes it very real in terms of practical things you do. Because I know myself, I get that bogged down with all the stuff on that left hand side of the page. It's like you, know, you got to get your computer fixed. You have to do this, and every day there's always something new. And you then don't. You're so right. Then you don't attend to the the right side of the page, which you're talking about, with your goals. At yeah. the event, Catherine, at the event, we did this thing, and you've maybe seen it, but we grabbed, um, we grabbed a bucket of Skittles, and we grabbed seven oranges and a big glass vase. And the Skittles, we call them Skittles and oranges in the book. Even. <laughs> so the Skittles are the, just the junk that everyone has to do every day. I got a bunch of Skittles I got to do today. And they're the things that will take over your life if you let them. And if you pour the Skittles in that jar first, and we let the seven oranges represent the seven key areas of life, the seven Fs of Ula. If you j- jump all the Skittles in first and you put the oranges in second, which are the key areas of life, like your family and your personal finance and your fitness and, and your fun, it, it doesn't fit. But ironically, if you flip it and you put in the key area, put in the oranges first, the things that are really important, the seven key areas, and then you fill it with the Skittles, it fits. Just it's a miracle. So, but we as a society do it the other way around. We fill our jar with Skittles first, and then we try to say, oh, that's right, I want to get in shape, and oh, that's right, I, my marriage sucks, and oh, that's right, I have all this debt. And then we try to put that in on top, it doesn't work. So that's what we're encouraging people to do is just as you're looking at that note card, make sure that you're saving time for the things that really matter. Yeah. And one of the things or the thing that you say in the book that really matters are family relationships and faith. I think I'm good at family relationships. I I don't know how good I am at faith, but uh, family relationships and faith. So let's talk about that. How do you incorporate your relationship? Navigating, I guess, good family relationships is is key to all of this. Yeah, especially this time of year. Um, This time of year, when we're talking about family relationships, uh, just the straight-up reality of statistics is toxicity in family relationships. Uh, In fact, 
there's a stat that eight out of 10 of us consciously um, have toxic relationships in our life. Uh, and in, in friends with technology, although it's not a simple thing to do, technology has made it easy because if you have a toxic friend who drops drama into your life or negativity into your life or tells you in a really passive aggressive way that you're less than or not capable, you can just block, unfollow, and delete. I mean, truly. Like, you can not see this person in your life. And you can that ghost will, them. That will protect you from that toxicity. But family, when you're sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table or you're getting together at a Christmas gathering and, and it's a co-parenting situation or it's an uncle or a sister or a brother or even your own parents um, and it's heavy in toxicity, that's, that's a challenge. And in ULA, what we encourage is to just visualize if, it, if you're attending an event and there is toxicity, um, let's think of like a CSI episode where they walk into a, a crime scene that there's a poison and it's all yellow taped and it's like there's just people walking around and you see someone suit up in like this hazmat suit, this big yellow suit with oxygen. And that's what we're, that's a code word in Ula, like hashtag suit up. Like if you're going in to that Christmas gathering and someone is bad for you, your body just tells you that, like you think of that person's name and just everything tightens up. That's telling you that person is toxic for you. And you have to treat that just the same way that CSI actor or character goes into that toxic situation and you have to suit up. You have to get in, get out, arrive late, leave early. And when the poison's on one side of the room, you go to the other. And when you finally have no choice but to face that person who's bad for you, the words and the glances and the straight up, um, just if they're straight up mean and angry toward you, it hits the suit and bounces off. It's like you can't even hear them. You have to build this, this boundary skill set that's so strong that the words they say, that, because our family knows just the buttons to push. They know just the things to say, just the way to look at you, to jab at those insecurities. And you have to build up this, this healthy boundary that when you face them, try to avoid them at all, at all costs, but when you face them, the words just bounce off your suit and reflect back toward them. So the suit is the, is the physical boundary, but then you, along with that, what you're saying is, you, I mean, what you need is an emotional boundary, and you have to keep that in mind when you know you're going to confront or be with this toxic person that you have to be with, either your yeah, sister-in-law it's a, it's or your visual, brother. A visualization skill yeah. set of just like, you know what, I, I really want to avoid this person, but they're going to be there, and they know how to push my buttons. I'm going to just visualize their words hitting the suit and bouncing off just so they don't stick in me because that's that's the hurtful part of this season everyone has such high expectations and it is a beautiful season um, to spend with family and friends but it feels like almost without exception everyone has that person or two in this season that they can suck the joy out of the season just with their toxicity and and the solution to that is learning how to build a healthy boundary that's critical all year round because there are always those kinds of gatherings. It's not just Thanksgiving and Christmas or Hanukkah or Easter or Passover. I mean, it, it seems like it's it's continual, whether it's a family gathering in July, the 4th of July, or just a family dinner on, uh, you know, uh, in the middle of the week. But so you really have this. I mean, I think that's really good advice. And, and, and I know as a social worker, so many times that when I was seeing uh, clients, that was one of the main issues, the toxicity. People who, were, they knew that they were going to be confronted with that kind of a situation and never really, and did not know how to handle it. And it can, it can permeate 
your life, really, especially what sometimes, okay, where you're talking about specific uh, gatherings or celebrations, but what about if you have someone in your life who you, as if we'll take family, because we're assuming maybe they have to be there, you handle it in the same way? Let's say you have a sister-in-law that you just, you have to see uh, more than just on uh, you know, holidays. You handle this in the same way? Your yeah, relationship, yeah. One skill set too, but in that case too, you, it's the ones you can't think of the same visualization of of, of being exposed to a poison. Um, you limit your exposure. So if you can even on social media block and follow. Uh, Facebook now has a category called "Take a Break," so you're not going to offend the person if if they see you unfollow them. It won't create drama. Just don't see their drama because it it affects you in a negative way. And this, the subtitles of all of our books are Find Balance in an Unbalanced World. And when we had our Ulapuz event, we, we reviewed the stats of where we're going as a culture. And the one I told you is that 8 out of 10 of us consciously keep toxic people in our lives. And that is something that we need to change as a culture. It's just, And I've had to do this myself, too. I've had lifelong friends that are great friends that when I review this exercise for myself, I'm like, we've been friends for 30 years, but... there's no value here either way. I don't think I'm providing value in his life. I don't think he's providing value in mine. And it's just, it's a tough line to draw, but it's not good for either party. So just build healthy relationships, mentor well, choose your friends wisely, not just from geography, just because your neighbors doesn't mean you have to be friends. Just because it's the, the person next to you at work doesn't mean you have to be friends. You can be acquaintances and you can be polite and civil. Um, but the people you that are close to you, Make sure they're supportive and you're supportive of them. Here's the, here's the challenge for people, too, which is a tough question to ask. As we're going into this season, you know, we're always talking about people being toxic to us, but the real question to ask is, ask is, am I dropping toxicity at the dinner table? Am I bringing drama and negativity into the family? And in this season of grace, just ask yourself that. Like, am I, am I leaving the interaction and the person feels worse or less than? Um, just a good question for all of us to ask in this season. Yeah, that's a great question to ask. We have one minute left, and I like that question, leaving the interview with that one. Um, and I had more to talk about with you, but we have no more time. <laughs> so <laughs> website we can go to. We can buy the the, uh, the book, uh, Ula Find Balance in an Unbalanced World, The Seven Areas You Need to Balance and Grow to Live the Life of Your Dreams, Troy Omdahl. Uh, so we can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere good books are sold. But a good starting point um, for Ula is ulalife.com, O-O-L-A-L-I-F-E.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Troy. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.